The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. This week, we speak to Anne Patchett about her new novel revolving around two siblings and the house of their childhood, and about her other life as an independent bookseller. Plus, we take a look at your responses to The Guardian's list of the top 100 books since 2000. Anne Patchett has been a literary star since she won the 2002 Orange Prize for Fiction for Bel Canto, a novel about an opera singer trapped in a hostage crisis. Her last book, 2016's Commonwealth, had family at its heart, and the same is true of her new novel, The Dutch House, which spans half a century in the lives of siblings Danny and Maeve as they're repeatedly drawn into dramas going on inside the titular and stately family home. Anne Patchett spoke to Sean and began with a reading from near the start of the novel when Danny meets his future stepmother for the very first time. I will always believe that Andrea's face fell for an instant when she looked at Maeve and me. Even if my father hadn't mentioned his children, she would have known he had them. Everyone in Elkins Park knew what went on in the Dutch house. Maybe she thought that we would stay upstairs. She'd come to see the house, after all, not the children. Or maybe the look on Andrea's face was just for Maeve, who, at 15 and in her tennis shoes, was already a head taller than Andrea in her heels. Maeve had been inclined to slouch when it first became apparent she was going to be taller than all the other girls in her class and most of the boys, and our father was relentless in his correction of her posture. Head up, shoulders back might as well have been her name. For years, he thumped her between the shoulder blades with the flat of his palm whenever he passed her in the room, the unintended consequence of which was that Maeve now stood like a soldier in the Queen's court, or like the Queen herself. Even I could see how she might have been intimidating, her height, the shining wall of her black hair, the way she would lower her eyes to look at a person rather than bend her neck. But at eight, I was still comfortably smaller than the woman our father would later marry. I held out my hand to shake her little hand and said my name. Then Maeve did the same. Though the story will be remembered that Maeve and Andrea were at odds right from the start, that wasn't true. Maeve was perfectly fair and polite when they met, and she remained fair and polite until doing so was no longer possible. And Patrick, welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, the Dutch house, uh, which centers on the Conroy family and is presided over by Cyril, who's the head of this real estate empire. And the sort of crown jewel of this is his beautiful grand house called the Dutch house, which is in Elkins Park. And I did a bit of a Google Maps tour after <laughs> finishing the book. So I actually wasn't sure about whether all of these places were real. And Elkins Park certainly is That's very real. thorough of you. <laughs> I was just intrigued because I, I think everyone has this no matter what neighborhood you grow up in, that there's always a house in your neighborhood that you've always wanted to see the inside of. And yes. there's th that introduction that we have to Andrea there. It becomes apparent that she's always been fascinated by this house that's owned by Cyril. And I had a little bit of sort of uh, envy that she'd got to see inside the house that she was fascinated by because everyone's always got that one grand house that they yes. want to see the inside of. Yes. Do, do you actually have, do you have one? You know, it's funny, I've never thought about this before, but I do. When yeah. I was growing up, I lived about three blocks away from this amazing house in Nashville that is still my favorite house. 
And I used to ride my bike past that house and think, oh, if someday I could see the inside of that house. Mm. Then flash forward an entire life, and I live on that street. I live about two blocks away from that house, and the woman, Hope, who owns the house is now a friend of mine, and I am in that house all the time. And the (laughs) funny thing is... As fantastic as the house is from the outside, it's not all that great from the inside. Oh, really? <laughs> the rooms are kind of small and chopped up in a weird way, and mm. I was probably better if I just stayed outside and imagined it. <laughs> well, that's, I've got this a picture of what the Dutch house must be like in my head, and I, I'd kind of love to know. It's kind of impossible, really, to know whether it is similar to the Dutch house that you're imagining. But did you actually base it on any real house? No, I didn't. And I don't really have the Dutch house in my head. Really? What I have are the elements that I wrote about. So the the trick of doing something like this is you just give incredibly specific details about handful of elements and then mention those elements several times so they keep coming back you know there's the bedroom with the window seat the the things that are in the foyer the clock and the vase and the side table and all of those things there really aren't that many details about the house Mm. because the important thing is the person who reads it can imagine it and make it whatever house they always knew growing up that they thought was the grandest house. <laughs> well, it has got this amazing presence, and it's, it's obviously a presence for all of the characters throughout their lives, even when some of these characters aren't living in the Dutch house anymore. It's always at the back of their of their minds. I thought it was interesting, because we obviously we have Danny, um, who is the narrator of the book, and then we have his sister Maeve. And I have to say that this book made me, I'm an only child, and it made me very wistful for siblings. Oh, I love I loved Maeve so much. You're young. I'm sure you could still get one. <laughs> try, try and get my friends to adopt someone. Um, but it's interesting, because I actually read Commonwealth not that long ago, your, your last novel, mm-hmm. and we've got two books sort of in quite quick succession about blended families and certainly reluctantly blended families. Why is that something that do you think that is something that's of interest to you? Well, okay, it's of interest to me because I came from one Mm. and Commonwealth was in many ways quite an autobiographical novel. This one is not at all. But I really do think that sometimes I get on a theme and it takes me two or three books to work it through. So the book before Commonwealth was called Run. It was about adopted siblings. Then Commonwealth was about the two siblings who have four step-siblings. And then this book, The Dutch House, is really about these very, very fierce brother and sister pair, uh, and they only have one another. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe I've worked all the sibling permutations out now and I can move on to something else, ducks or something like that. (laughs) Something really different, like a space opera. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And that's the interesting thing with this book as well is, I mean, this book is set over really, it's a really long period of time. It's half a century, basically, for, you know, we see Danny from an eight year old to a man who has children of his own. Yes. Um, I was trying to think back to all your other books and all your other books have been sort of centered over relatively short periods of time. No, not Commonwealth. Not Commonwealth. Commonwealth is is a long period of time because my books had become so constricted. It was like they took place over three months, then three weeks, then a day. (laughs) And I thought, I've got to stretch out. And so Commonwealth takes place over about 40 years. And I thought, I really like this. And again, 
whatever I do in the last book that I like, I, I tend to bring forward. So I thought I want to write another book that takes place over a long time. The thing about this book is it's the first time in a very, very long time that I've written a book in the first person. Mm -hmm. And so now whatever I write next, no doubt will be in the first that, person. That's been the element that you liked. That'll be the thing that I'll <laughs> carry forward for a while How and then I'll drop. And so do you, do you sort of set yourself challenges when you're starting a new book? Do you think I haven't tried first person for a while? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try first person? Yes, absolutely. So mm -hmm. my first two books, which were published in 1992 and 1994, were in first person. Then all I ever wanted was to get the third person down. I did, I dropped it. I kind of thought, okay, well, that was for beginners. Now I'm going on, it, which is odd because I don't feel that way about first person when I'm reading, only mm. when I'm writing. And Commonwealth was autobiographical, and I had said I would never write an autobiographical novel. So after that, it went well. I thought, okay, well, what have I said that I would never do? I would never write another first person book. Hmm. Well, then I'll give that a try. And it was actually a really good exercise, and it was very hard. In my memory, it was so easy, it was just ridiculous. Really? And now, after all these years of not doing it, I thought, oh, this is really tough. I have found some people who are very down on the omniscient third, mm -hmm. the sort of uh, viewpoint that is the voice of God. And I have, in the South where I live, rarely come in contact with some people who have said, you ought not have a narrative structure that is the voice of God. You mm. shouldn't be all-knowing. You shouldn't have a narrative structure that can read everyone's thoughts because only God can read everyone's thoughts. And I think, oh, that's interesting. Mm. You're going to stop me? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested to know whether that advice would uh, be different and say more secular. <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, I don't think other people have problems. It's just a, <laughs> a very, very specific sort of Southern American fundamentalist. <laughs> uh, you mentioned before that you, 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 before Commonwealth, you'd said that you weren't going to write an autobiographical novel. Was there a particular reason for that? Because you write so well about families, and obviously with Commonwealth, it was clear that your family was of interest to you. Well, what happened is then you have to keep going backwards, backwards. The book before Commonwealth was a collection of essays called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage mm. that were very personal and strange because I had written them all for different places at different times and it didn't seem like I was revealing very much because it was sort of parsed out in little bits. But then when I put them all together, I thought, oh, this is really personal. And I talked to my family about it and they said, oh, we don't care. We oh, don't really? care at all. And I thought, oh, well, all right, if you don't care about personal essays, which are really true and use your real names, then maybe I could just go ahead and write an autobiographical <laughs> novel in which it's not true and these things didn't happen, but it's kind of the feeling of how we were. And my family didn't care about that either. Mm. So I, I think that I was protecting them from something they didn't care about being protected from. And then so certainly with this, you, you mentioned before that this is not autobiographical at all, but I was really interested about the sort of inherent truth of some of the family relationships here and particularly between Danny and Maeve, just because I was so envious of that, that link that they had. Is that something that comes from any experience in terms of the closeness of siblings? I'm always interested in the closeness of siblings and I've been thinking about this a lot recently talking about the book. And I was thinking, 
it has something to do with the fact that I've never gotten anywhere with romantic love. None of my books are primarily or even secondarily about romantic love. I've read a lot about family and friendship, and there is an incredible closeness that siblings have. And so maybe now it's time for me to move on to romantic love, although I think that that's what people do in their 20s and not in their 50s. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but it, but it, is, it is really very moving, the closeness that that siblings can have. And certainly within the relationships that they have, they're both quite reverential of their father, even though he's quite a distant figure at times. But right. And also it's that Maeve is both Danny's sister and Danny's mother. Yes. That's a big part of it. That She's seven years older and they don't have a mother. And so she always mothers him. She always puts her needs before his. And so it's, I think, a sort of doubly close relationship. And then with characters like Andrea, when she turns up, I mean, was Andrea spectacularly fun to write? Because I had a little gasp when I was reading some of the things that she was saying. (laughs) (laughs) She is the stepmother, and she was spectacularly fun. And when I look over my whole body of work, the thing that is missing are villains. Right. I'm awful at villains. (laughs) I'll start out with a villain, but then that character will wind up being beloved by all. So it was really great to think, all right, I've finally written a true villain because Andrea really is a true villain. She really is. And I'm not going to, I won't spoil anything for anyone that hasn't read it yet, but certainly the book becomes about forgiveness and I was villainy. <laughs> yes. And I wasn't actually sure for a lot of the book that it was going to be about forgiveness. I thought perhaps it was going to be about revenge in some ways. Well, several people have told me the book has a little bit of a thriller feel. It's got that page turning quality that most of my books don't have. <laughs> um, and I think that it is that. It's the the promise to the reader that perhaps there will be revenge. And I don't think that Andrea is forgiven as much as it is they come to terms with her. There is an understanding. Yes. They stop letting her take up all of the space in their head. Yeah. Which is where their rage lives. (laughs) Actually, there's a funny thing I noticed between this and Commonwealth. In Commonwealth, there's a lot of interactions had with gin. Gin is sort of Mm -hmm. a big thing in that. And then in this, I thought smoking in the car basically has become the the new way of having gin. The new new way to have an important conversation. (laughs) It's so true. And... I used to smoke, and I quit a long time ago, as everybody did. And yet, boy, there was a certain intimacy around smoking. Mm -hmm. When you would meet someone and say, do you want to go out and have a cigarette? Or if you had a really important conversation, you would go sit down and have a cigarette, and you would really talk. And it sort of creates its own space, its own room. When I think about going to weddings and sneaking off and sitting in the hallway with a waiter or something for the <laughs> wedding and having a cigarette and the closeness that you can feel with a complete stranger when you're smoking with them. And then that times a thousand when it's with someone that you really love that you're going to go out and have a cigarette. It's like an excellent novelist device. It's like how some thriller writers complain that the mobile phone killed the crime novel. That's so true. <laughs> it's, it killed the literary novel, too. I'm always wrestling with what you do with having a mobile phone or not having a mobile phone. Yeah, you give them cigarettes instead. <laughs> and also the fact that the people who 
built the Dutch house, the Van Hubeks, made their fortune on cigarettes. Yes. And I actually, when I was writing it, I didn't even put that together <laughs> until I got to the end. I was like, cigarettes are the motivating feature in this whole book. <laughs> now, with the Dutch house and this sort of point of your career, you're talking before about challenging yourself and setting yourself challenges with each book that comes and figuring out what you like and while you're writing novels and I was wondering about sort of where you feel you are now in your career in terms of do you feel like a different writer to the writer you were in the 90s and do you feel like a a more confident writer that you can make calls and go actually I'm going to do what I want I'm going to do a first person autobiographical novel and I have to say I've I've always felt that way. Mm. And here's the thing about writing literary fiction. It doesn't make any difference. Even if you're Margaret Atwood, you're just the most famous and successful and important literary novelist out there. You could still stop plenty of people on the street and say, what do you think of Margaret Atwood? And they would say, who? Um, Or maybe they would say, I've heard the name, but I've never read one of the books you're still dealing with a tiny fraction of the public doing this work. You're not a rock star. You're not curing cancer. So I think that even when I wrote my first novel in 1992, I've always had this sense of no one's watching. No one really cares what you're doing in a novel. It, you know, when people say, oh, we're so excited you have a new novel, when you're going to have another novel? And I think, you know, if I don't have another novel, your life is going to go on just exactly <laughs> the same as it always has. Harper Lee, she wrote one novel, and then very late, there was another one that popped up. Everyone got along just fine with To Kill a Mockingbird. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't, you can't get too self-conscious because the stakes are so low. Mm. And so that, then that's incredibly liberating. I it guess. is. Yeah. Right. If you don't feel liberated writing literary fiction, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think about if you're writing thrillers and you have repeating characters and motifs and people really, really come to count on them or or the guy who wrote Game of Thrones and you know, people get upset if they see him at a baseball game because they want him to go home and finish Game of Thrones. I'm never going to have that problem. It's a good problem not Exactly. Not so I should really bloom, right? <laughs> so even in Nashville, because obviously, I mean, you've got your bookshop Parnassus, which I, I've always admired from afar. I've never been, but uh, you know, you I've seen visit. photos. It looks fantastic. It's fantastic. And yeah, people know who I am in Nashville. And, yeah. and every now and then we have a moment where, as we say in Nashville, somebody does a fangirl on you and they get all <laughs> flustered and upset in the grocery store. But... <laughs> You know, it is not the defining feature of my life. It's just rare enough to be nice. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so with, with Parnassus then, I, I have to know in terms of uh, the bookshop, and certainly now, and I saw recently, it's a thing that's happening in America. We don't have it in the UK yet, uh, Amazon bookstores. Yes. yes. Um, and obviously Parnassus is this wonderful beacon for independent bookselling. How, is it, how has bookselling changed since Parnassus opened? And how are you feeling about it at this point of time when you've got things like Amazon trying to move in? Amazon is actually opening a physical bookstore across the street from Parnassus. And it's kind of funny because people will say, how's the bookstore doing? And I'll say, oh, it's doing great. You want to know how well it's doing? 
Amazon has come to kill me. <laughs> and, and that's sort of how it feels. You know, it's like, we're doing so well that they've come to kill us. <laughs> um, and I don't think they will. Amazon, of course, has always been there as long as we've been there. If you want to buy a book from Amazon, in my mind, it means you're in bed. You don't want to get up. Mm -hmm. You order a book to be mailed to your house. You don't think, I want a book. I want to buy it from Amazon. I'm going to get in my car and drive to the mall and find a parking place. They are in the mall. We are not. You know, if you want a book from Amazon, you get a book from Amazon. If you want a book from an independent bookstore, you, you come still to going us. To you. Yeah. So even though I don't love it and I wish it wasn't happening, I don't think they're going to kill me. Someone said very, very wisely, one of the women who works in the shop, she said it would be much worse if they were on the other side of town, mm -hmm. where people really do have to drive to us and make an effort yeah. to shop at an independent store. She said, basically, you know, if you're talking about, okay, it's on this side of the street or that side of the street, I might as well do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's It's a little nice, in <laughs> fact, that they're right across the street. And if they don't have it, they can go to you. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Patchett talking to Sean, and The Dutch House is published by Bloomsbury. After the break, we'll be back with your feedback on The Guardian's list of the 100 best books of the 21st century so far. The way things are isn't the way they have to be. But knowing what to challenge and how to change it isn't always clear. That's why independent journalism has never mattered more. When we are free to follow any lead and question any authority, we can confront the status quo, uncover vital alternatives and bring clarity to the world's most complex issues. We can help our readers understand the world. So together we can fight for a better one. Hope is power. And with your support, you'll always find it at The Guardian. Welcome back to The Guardian Books Podcast. Last week, we revealed The Guardian's list of the top 100 books since 2000. It's a list taking in fiction, non-fiction, graphic novels, poetry, science, and is intended to mark out what we think are the most significant books and to be a springboard for debate. Sean, has the list proved as controversial as you expected? <laughs> It's as controversial as I expected in that it is a list and therefore it is controversial. Um, I saw a lot of people uh, getting cross about the fact that we'd published a list at all, which a lot of people find useful lists. And I, I, I always like them as a almost as a thought experiment, as a means to just stimulate a conversation. But some people really seem to resent the idea that we would start that conversation at all. I, I've come around to thinking of it in terms of some people liking being irritated and other people not liking being <laughs> yeah, irritated. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's how yeah. the, the comments break. And if yes. you like it, the positive feedback was all saying, oh, this is an interesting list. Good on Guardian 51 books by women in a list of 100. You know, with some omissions, obviously, and also some imbalances, but not as many imbalances as people thought. Yes. Your favourite comment. Read your favourite comment. Oh, yes. I like this. This is my favourite comment. And it's actually the favourite comment on the piece. If you have a look at recommendations, most people have voted this one up. There is some stuff here that is terrible. There is some stuff here that is great. There are books that are missing. There are books in the wrong order. Thank you for suggesting more books for me to read. A perfect that's little it. guardian yeah. poet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. That's all it is. And being able to acknowledge the constraints of having a list of 100 books, you know, putting together this together was torture. Like It was absolutely awful. And it was basically constantly changing until the print day for review. But 
the idea that because your book that you love might be 101 and it's not in this top 100 list, there were so many books that people brought up that were actually contenders and were on the list at one point and before there was a bit of a debate about it and something else got brought up. You know, there were so many of those cases that I kind of want to go in and talk to people and go, that was at 47 at one point and it's no longer there. I'm it's very a little sorry. Ghost, a little ghost yeah. stalking the edges of the list. And that's the thing. I think it's actually like when we first put it together and we just sort of based it on what our critics were coming back to us and saying should be there, what definitely had to be there. We were first sort of prioritising things that came up multiple times that were obvious sort of firm favourites for a lot of people. But then once you've done that and you take a look at the list, inevitably we ended up with way too much fiction we ended up with quite a good balance of men and women, actually, but we had quite a lot of men writing nonfiction and not a lot of women. Taking into account things like translation, we obviously wanted to reflect the proportion of translated works. We wanted to at least reflect it or over-reflect it, which we actually did in, in the end. In terms of the proportion of books published, which is something like 3%, whereas we had something like 14 So, So it's 5.6% currently in the UK, but that's actually a record high for the UK. So it's actually 5.6% of all fiction published in the UK is is translated, which is not very much at all. And that's a high. Um, so actually to have 14%, um, and that is spanning fiction and non-fiction, but we actually don't have fi- figures for translated non-fiction, and there isn't an awful lot really. But most of, our, of the books on our list that are translated are fiction. So actually we've massively overrepresented in terms of what is published. But they're also you know, amazing books. I think the top placing one is Svetlana Alexievich for secondhand time and she's at number three. So it's it's not the idea that there are a lot of people going, Oh, Guardian typical Anglo Saxon hates translated work, blah 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 but I don't think that's really there were one on that one list. specific complaint which I think that I can see point of was the um, paucity of, of South Asians. Yes. We, we we did actually there were quite a lot of authors that were brought up for the list that would have been contenders. Obviously, the the one that was brought up quite a lot was Haruki Murakami. But uh, there was only one book that was ever really nominated by a couple of critics, which was After Dark, which then after talking to a couple of them, they said, well, actually, we don't even think that it's one of his best works, but it just fits the time frame. Um, And a lot of his best books were published in the 90s and then translated into... English later on. Yeah, but but some people complained that we'd we'd nominated the Amber Spyglass, Philip Pullman, and pointed yes. out quite rightly probably that it wasn't the strongest of that trilogy. Mm. But the same thing goes, doesn't it, Richard, for Philip Pullman? The other ones were in the 90s. Yes, I mean, that, that book is standing there partly as a reflection of the whole trilogy rather than as the, the, the novel in and of itself. And I think there's, there's a certain amount of that going on in the list. We try yes. and pick things that gesture towards a whole achievement rather than Mm. necessarily standing on their own two feet. Yes, and things like Harry Potter, even Stieg Larsson, for example, we had this debate constantly about, well, do we use something that's obviously eternally debatable, which is taste, you know, I like this novel, so I'm putting it on the list, or do we use something that's simply not up for debate, which is significance? And so there's things like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo on there, which some people have said, well, I hated that and I don't think it's very well written and I didn't like this part of it. But it's also absolutely the precursor for all of the Scandinavian crime that we've had over the last 15 years. And he did, uh, Larson did sort of do something new for English readers. Um, So in terms of significance, that's simply inescapable. He deserved a a place on this list. But also Larson would never have had any idea of his own significance because he died before any of his books were published. So it's not like he was aiming to do that. It's a complete sort of freak of chance that 
his books have become as big as they are. Of course, you can always debate forever how good they are, mm. but to not recognise what that book did for English readers it sort of seems like an oversight to me. And the same thing could be said of Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. Yes, yeah, I absolutely. But I think that Gone Girl actually, rather than sort of that whole domestic noir griplet thing that it seemed to have spawned, I think that it actually did something very interesting in terms of structure, and certainly in terms of voice. I think that the voice of Amy in that book is, you know, really, really accomplished. But again, some people debate. We've dealt with um, translation, which was one of the bits of drum banging I always think of it as, which is fine. People have their, their hobby horses, but, but it is a hobby horse. Um, another one is small presses. Now, Richard, you're a big small press fan, I know. I can be a big small press fan. I'm not sure that kind of works somehow. But yes, absolutely. I mean, I, this is one of the ones that I think absolutely I'm all very much on board with supporting small presses. But I sort of looked down our list, having seen a comment or two saying, where are the small presses? And just very rapidly saw books from Another Story, Serpent's Tale, Portobello, Fitzcarraldo, Canongate, Melba has never kind of stopped because after a while, I mean, there's there's lots there, there's tons. Yeah. In terms of the omissions, yeah, there's some really good stuff. Again, a lot of this, the the books that were suggested by people were actually contenders. Um, but again, a hundred is a hundred. The Goldfinch, the Goldfinch is always bought out. The Goldfinch, I found personally the goldfinch unwieldy and that was something that a lot of people brought up when we debated about Donna Tartt. We all agreed that The Secret History was her best book but it wasn't published this century so it couldn't be included. Things like Jasper Ford, Bill Bryson, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell by Susanna Clarke, uh, Shadow of the Wind by Zaphon. Ian Banks was someone that came up a lot. Yes, yes. And we did consider Ian Banks, didn't we? And we couldn't decide which side we of his over to put yeah. in, whether to put Ian N. Banks, who's the science fiction side of him, or the other side of him. Yeah, and none of the books that were published in this century, again, were ones that stood out for us as, like, Banks at his best. Like, he's a brilliant writer, but in terms of the list, we only wanted to have every author once. So then when we're looking at every author, we were always slightly considering, right, well, is this them at their best? And even them at their worst is that better than some authors just to, because I know somebody people might be screaming saying yeah but you've just said you didn't put Philip Pullman's best but that is part of a continuing work exactly. part of a trilogy whereas yeah. in Banks's case they're separate novels yeah. so you feel, have a feeling that his oeuvre was predated the turn of the century yeah and I mean there's stuff like obviously the culture series that he did as Ian M Banks and some people said the hydrogen sonata from that series should have been there but again that series is quite strange because it's basically a whole bunch of standalone novels set in the same universe so choosing one isn't necessarily reflective of the whole achievement things like Stonemouth or the quarry which were novels under Ian Banks again great but is it Ian Banks at his best some people aren't fans of Yuval Noah Harari and that I, I guess that sort of big picture looks at the world. We didn't have any big picture looks at the world, did we? Apart from, I suppose, cancer, the, the emperor of all maladies, you could say is a, well, it's a look at the world, but it's a look yes. at a, a, a big picture look at cancer in that case. Yes. Some people that, that suggested as well um, things like The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volleben. I would add to that The Overstory by Richard, um, Richard Powers, Powers. Which, which was suggested by a few people, which I, I've been going on about. I yeah. really like that book. Middlesex by Geoffrey Eugenides, Cain by Jose Saramago, Q by Luther Blissett, which I found very impenetrable, but again, as an achievement, it's, it's something quite cool. Cersei by Madeleine Miller, Richard's favourite. 
<laughs> he just did a silent <laughs> pump of his head. Silent, um, yay! Yeah. One of my things I really enjoyed was there was a weird little anomaly, which you noticed, Claire. At 9.30 on Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> that number 39 wasn't on the online list. And now this is a weird thing because in the print list, some of the authors that were on the list, um, instead of having a little entry for their book, we actually had a small interview or a Q&A with them. And in this case, 39 was Zadie Smith for White Teeth. And we had this small Q&A with her in review. But when the list was put online, that Q&A was published separately and number 39 was completely gone. So there was sort of an hour and a half where uh, 39 wasn't there and there was a little debate about what 39 was going to be when it turned (laughs) up, um, which was really fun. And so there were things like The Blind Assassin by Atwood, Inherent Vice by Thomas Pynchon, Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry, uh, Crimson Petal and the White, uh, Michelle Faber. House of Leaves was constantly brought up, and that actually was on the list for a really long time until it was finally decided that we were taking it off. Uh, it's just to the sort of else. game that House of Leaves plays. Uh, yeah, in fact. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Fifty Shades, which was not going to happen, and that's just silly. The one final thing is people who quibbled about the ordering, which we went through again and again and again, didn't we? And the, the, the sort of most notable one is Sally Rooney's Normal People at 25 and Oryx and Craig by Margaret Atwood, the saint, at 50. <laughs> Sean, that, you're, you're to blame for that, aren't you, being a huge Sally Rooney fan? I was about to say, and an Atwood fan. And an Atwood fan. <laughs> yes, this, this list has got my uh, little grubbers all over it. There was actually criticism of that. So we, we, we debated about Rooney because it is so recent. So it's like, are we making the call too soon? But, you know, frankly, we're making all of these calls too we're soon. We're making the call from where we are now. Yes, exactly. We're in 2019. We're not in 2100. And know. also people are very much on the Atwood case at the moment just because of the new novel being released. Yes, and released, I do think so. Oryx and Craig is a genuinely fantastic novel. I'd say in her top three. A lot of her books, obviously the ones that I love are in the 80s and 90s. But yeah, I think Oryx and Craig is a real achievement. It's right on the cusp for the, at 2000. Whereas Sally Rooney, of course, only in 2018. But it was so beloved by so many critics that wrote to us. And also like a genuine literary you know event like it, it it transcended those sort of barriers of you know what was perhaps lofty to some people people were reading it all over the country and buying it in hardback and paperback and I would have felt its absence if it wasn't there um, I think in the end I my conclusion is that actually this if I were to read these hundred books it's a pretty good reading list yeah well I mean basically there was a one comment from someone who said it would be interesting to see how many of these books would make it into a top 100 of the 21st century by 2050 or 2100 I've read a few but I can't help but think this is all far too zeitgeisty and this commenter mentioned Sally Rooney as an example of that but also they acknowledge that fiction is very subjective and they were happy with some things and you know hadn't read a few other things so I so think are, we, are we slapping ourselves on the back no not really I mean I hate I hated doing this to be honest <laughs> I mean I just want to I want to rest in a cup of tea and that's all for this week if you have any more thoughts about this week's episode get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page and please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from but for now from me Claire Armistead me Richard Lee and me Sean Kane and our producer Ian Chambers thanks for listening and goodbye For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.